0: Well, there's a reason why that song is not called "I will glory in myself." Can you even imagine us singing a song like that? I will glory in myself. I mean, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? Why? Why is that not true? Why why is it I will glory in my Redeemer? Well. It's because of what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn back there with me this morning as we um, follow up on the message that we had last week in what is probably the most important passage, at least in regards to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, found anywhere in the Bible and uh, last week we looked at verses 21 through 26, and uh, I'm, I know you all probably left feeling like you were, uh, had been drinking out of a fire hose um, because there was just so much packed into this, uh, these verses. But we're going to look at the, the follow-up verses, verses 27 through 31, but because they all go together, I want to reread for you uh, starting in verse 21, and we'll read all the way to verse 31. Verse 31. whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now our text for this morning, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we've had already today to celebrate what you're doing around the world through the gospel, particularly in the land of China, through the choice. Lord, we've been able to worship and sing songs praising you and thanking you for Uh, This great plan of salvation, Lord, that that we can't take any credit for. Um, Thank you for uh, designing salvation in such a way that you had to do it all so that you would get all the glory. And so as we think about these verses that Paul wrote under, under the inspiration of your spirit, I pray that the same spirit that inspired him to write these verses would now illuminate us so that we might understand what these verses mean and how they apply to our lives. We pray this for your honor and the honor of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, the story is told that in ancient times, there was a beloved king who was highly esteemed by his people for the wise and just and kind way that he ruled over his kingdom. When a rash of thefts broke out, the king issued an edict throughout the land saying that Uh, Whoever was guilty of the crime would receive a punishment of 10 lashes. The stealing continued, and the king progressively raised the number of lashes to 40, which was the death penalty, since everyone knew not even the king himself could survive uh, 40 lashes. Well, the thief was eventually caught, and to everyone's horror, it turned out to be the king's own elderly mother. Obviously, that put the king in a real quandary, and the people speculated what their great leader would do. Would he be true to his love for his mother and excuse her from her crime, or would he be true to his justice and sentence her to death? Well, the day appointed for her punishment came, and the whole kingdom turned out to see what the king was going to do. And they all gathered in the courtyard around a large whipping post that was set before the king's throne. And the king sat in silence as his mother was brought out and tied to the post. And the tension in the crowd mounted when her garment was torn off. And the whipmaster approached and cracked the whip in the air. And as he prepared to bring that first lash upon her, all of a sudden the king held up his hand and cried, Stop! And a huge sigh of relief went up from the people, but they were unprepared for what happened next. The king rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, and got behind his mother and bent over her and wrapped his arms around her and said, proceed with the punishment. And through tears, the people watched as their wise king was whipped to death in his mother's place Demanding justice while at the same time demonstrating mercy. Well, in an infinitely greater way, that's what God did for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He, Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, his whipping, we were healed. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24 that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, for by his wounds you were healed. You see, when it came to saving sinners who were guilty of breaking his laws from a human standpoint, God was in a quandary. How could he be true to his holiness and his justice and his wrath that demanded that sin be punished, while at the same time be true to his love and his grace and his mercy that desired to forgive us and to rescue us from our sin? Well, divine wisdom devised a solution to this divine dilemma. God took the punishment for sin upon himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ, on the cross, endured the full weight of God's wrath in the place of all those who would believe in him. Because the penalty of sin was paid for at the cross, God can declare unrighteous people righteous without compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness, it's all because of the cross that, simply put, God is able to justify sinners and still be just. And that's what Paul meant when he said that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so as we learned last week in verses 21 through 26, Paul was not only explaining how God justifies sinners or makes us right with him, but he also was explaining how God could justify sinners and still be just. I went away last week thinking, wow, that was a really kind of lots of stuff to kind of get our minds around. And I thought, you know, a simple way to just understand these verses is is Paul is just doing two things. He's, number one, explaining how did God do it, how did God justify sinners. But then secondly, how could he do it? How could he and still be just? Well, we know that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so in explaining these dynamics of justification, um, really what Paul has given us A gift here, uh, the, the clearest, most concentrated summary of the essential reformational truth of justification by faith alone found anywhere in the entire Bible. In fact, the word faith is used eight times in verses 21 through 31. And I won't take the time to point them out to you, but it's in verse 22, verses 25, 26, 27, 28, verse 30, and verse 31. And so, again, the obvious point that Paul was making is a person is saved or justified by faith not by works which we have come to know is the theme of the book of Romans and is the very heart of the gospel message itself i appreciated the words of one commentator who said this the doctrine of justification by faith alone has been lost and found again and again throughout the history of the church it has suffered from understatement from overstatement, and perhaps most often simply from neglect. He said it was the central message of the early church and the central message of the Protestant Reformation under the godly leadership of men such as Martin Luther and John Calvin. It is still today the central message of every church that is faithful to God's word. Only when the church understands and proclaims justification by faith can it truly present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for us as a church, right, if we uh, want to be faithful to God's word and we want to proclaim uh, the the gospel of Christ in all of its glory and all of its authority, uh, accurately we must understand this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, after explaining the doctrine or the truth of justification by faith alone, Paul anticipated, as he so often did uh, in this letter, a fresh series of questions or objections from his readers, particularly the Jewish ones. And uh, as we've already seen in chapters two and three, um, Paul from time to time would interject questions that he would then answer as if he was carrying on a debate with some imaginary objector or opponent. Uh, He he kind of, uh, if you will, impersonates a heckler in the crowd. As if there's somebody out there going to be, yeah, what? But but what about this, Paul? Oh, seriously? Then that means that he's just anticipating what a heckler might say. And so Paul knew at this point that some would naturally take issue or have questions about his teaching on justification by faith alone. In other words, some people would have a hard time accepting the fact that we contribute nothing to our salvation. And so using a a question and, and uh, answer format, Paul clarified three obvious implications of God's wise and wonderful faith alone in Christ alone plan of salvation. And we're going to see this in verses 27 through 31. Uh, we're going to see, first of all, that justification by faith alone eliminates pride. That's verses 27 and 28. Secondly, justification by faith alone equalizes all men. That's verses 29 and 30. And then thirdly, justification by faith alone establishes God's law. And that's what he talks about in verse 31. And so let's look at these three obvious implications or or, or conclusions, if you will, uh, when we understand justification by faith alone. First of all, justification by faith alone eliminates pride. Notice he says, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. It is eliminated. It is shut out. It's removed. It's, it's done away with. It's, it's wiped out. It is non-existent. And he says, by what kind of law? And that law there is not capital L. You've noticed it in your Bibles. Uh, It's small l, and that's for a reason. He's not talking about the Mosaic law here. He's he's simply talking about a law in the sense of a principle. Based on what principle? Why is there no boasting? Why is boasting eliminated? Is it a law or a principle of works? No, but a law of faith. In other words, a person is justified or made right with God, not by keeping all the requirements of the law, but by trusting in Christ. Not by doing a bunch of good works, but rather placing their faith in Christ's work. Salvation is is not about what we have done for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. And he makes this clear in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's already uh, stated this back in verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now I think it's important that we clarify something here, that we are not saved by faith, but we're saved by faith. Christ through faith. And faith is not the cause of our salvation, but the means or the instrument of our salvation. In other words, some would maybe put faith in the category of a work. Well, Jesus did all this, and now what I have to do is believe. I have to have faith, and that's sounds like almost something that we need to do but we need to understand uh, that faith is a gift from God and it's not the cause of our salvation it's simply the means or instrument of our salvation if you were uh, if you were dying of thirst and somebody handed you uh, a container of water and the only way you could get that water out was through a straw would you praise the straw or would you praise the water for saving your life? Right, it was the water that saved your life. The, the straw was just the instrument or the means by which that water got into you. Now, when Martin Luther was sequestered in Warper Castle in Germany after he was uh, a bounty was put on his head, and some friends of him, friends of his. Actually kidnapped him and locked him away in this castle, and said martin luther you 're too valuable to be to be killed. Uh, we need you uh, to, to lead this reformation, and, and so you stay here and hide out well while he was hiding out, he made good use of his time and he translated the the, the, the Bible from Hebrew and greek the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts into german and it 's a well known fact that when he got to this verse verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, that he actually inserted a word in his German translation that was not in this letter originally. Do you know what word that was? Guess the word alone. This is what he wrote. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. And, and why did he do that? He wanted to emphasize one of the five foundational truths or doctrines of the Reformation era, what we know today as sola fide, faith alone, along with um, sola gratia, grace alone, or solus Christus, Christ alone, or sola scriptura, scripture alone, and of course, soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. And so the focus that, that Luther and the other reformers placed on the five solas, particularly sola fide, faith alone, I think has served the church well over the years. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? And so he says here, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith, and we could say we understand alone apart from the works of the law. So Paul's point here is simply this. Since we are not saved by our own good works, But by grace, through faith alone, the obvious implication then is that none of us can boast about our achievements or our accomplishments as if they had something to do with our salvation. He's going to continue this thought in chapter 4, verse 2. Notice he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. In other words, if salvation was by works, Abraham could have boasted, but he can't. You think about a, a a swimmer who is drowning and is rescued by a lifeguard. You don't see that guy on the shore bragging about, you know, trusting the lifeguard. Hey, the reason why I saved because I, I trusted the lifeguard. Um, no, it's all about the lifeguard, right? Um, he doesn't claim the reason he didn't he didn't drown was he was smart enough or strong enough to grab the life preserver, right? He he gives all the praise and all the honor to that that lifeguard. Well, actually, that analogy breaks down. If you know the way Paul describes our salvation in in Ephesians, turn turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. Just turn over a few pages to the right. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul makes it clear that we weren't drowning in sin, we had already drowned, i.e. we were what? Dead. And that's what he says, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't do a thing. They can just lay there, right? They, needed to be, they need to be resuscitated. If you had already drowned, and you had already gone down to the bottom of the lake or the ocean, and the lifeguard dove down and hauled you to the shore, and you're dead, and he lays you out there on the beach and starts to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, CPR, right? And all of a sudden, you're resuscitated. You come back to life. That's a more accurate picture of salvation. In other words, you couldn't do anything. If you had been left at the bottom of that lake or that ocean, you would have been gone forever. Forever. And so Paul wants to make this very clear. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived and the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So not only were we dead in our trespasses and sins, we were doomed to face God's wrath. To go to hell, essentially, is what he's saying. Verse 4, one of the glorious buts, gods in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy. In other words, when you could do nothing, when we could do nothing, God... Shows up on the scene. He's the lifeguard, if you will, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of all your good works that you have done to earn salvation." Is that what it says? No, that he might show, show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then here he, he climaxes this whole uh, uh, explanation of, of, of regeneration, being dead people coming back to life. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, what? May boast. It is human nature to want to take credit for everything we earn, achieve, or accomplish in life, including our salvation. But when it comes to salvation, Paul can rightly say, where then is boasting? It's, it's, it's non-existent. It's impossible to, bo- to boast about our salvation. Why? Because none of us can say we earned our salvation, let alone that we even deserved our salvation. And so God designed salvation in such a way that, that he would have to do all the work so that he would get all the glory. And if you want to say, if you just have to say you contributed something, If you just can't get past that, well, then at least say what you contributed to your salvation is your sin. That's what you contributed. All we can ever say is that we did all the sinning and Jesus did all the saving. And we should all have the the, the attitude of the self-condemning tax collector Rather than the self-righteous Pharisee, you remember this story in Luke 18, verse 9, and he also, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Don't let anybody ever tell you uh, that the Jews in Jesus' day and in Paul's day didn't think they were going to get to heaven by their own righteousness or their own good works. Jesus himself knew that, and that's why he told this story. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Sounds like some Christians. Who like to congratulate themselves, give themselves some pats on the back, some attaboys. They, they feel really good about themselves, and that they're sitting here this morning and not out there with all those wretched sinners. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner." Not just a sinner, the sinner. I'm the worst sinner I know. I tell you, this this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, there's a reason we don't come to church every Sunday and sing songs about how great we are or what good things are. We have done. We we sing God's praises rather than our own. I was kind of joking a little earlier. I, I will glory in myself, seriously? Amazing works? How sweet the sound that saved a good guy like me? It doesn't even make any sense, right? How great I am. Instead of how great thou art, right? How great I am. Then sings my soul how great I am. How about in me alone? In me alone I put my trust, right? I mean, are you serious? There's a reason why these songs that we sing are all about Christ, not us. And, and, and it's also true that we are not going to be walking around heaven telling each other all the good things we did, all the, the great sacrifices we made to get there kind of comparing our life stories, trying to one-up everyone else. By the way, that's why Satan got kicked out of heaven in the first place. He was trying to one-up God, trying to be better than God, and God hates pride. And boasting is a verbal expression of pride. And so pride is the last thing God would ever want reintroduced into heaven. He, he, He got rid of it once, and so his faith alone in Christ alone, plan of salvation, eliminates all possibility of pride ever showing up back in heaven. Because the only people who he's allowed or he allows to, to, to enter heaven are those who admit they don't deserve to be there in the first place. And there's nothing they could do or did to earn their place there. John Stott said it this way, praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activity of a justified believer and will be throughout eternity. There should be no boasting in the church. There will be no boasting in heaven for sure. Nothing but praise and honor to the Lord Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1... This is what Paul said to the believers in Corinth. He said, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Boy, talk about, you know, lowering the Corinthian self-esteem here, right? He's basically calling them, uh, calling them out as being foolish and, and weak and base. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Again, by his doing. Not your doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in himself? No, boast in the Lord. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the first practical implication here of justification by faith alone is that it eliminates pride, it eliminates boasting. Secondly, justification by faith alone equalizes all men. Equalizes all men. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 29, Paul asks another question here Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Again, I think he had Jewish believers in mind here. And uh, since the Gentiles worshipped all sorts of idolatrous gods, uh, it was natural for the Jews to assume that, that the true and living God was theirs alone. But what Paul wanted them to understand that that since God created all mankind and He controls all mankind, then then God is the God of everyone, whether they acknowledge it or not. In in fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, uh, I love what Paul said in his instruction about eating, whether or not to eat meat offered to idols. Um, Bottom line, he says, it doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, "...therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one." So they can say that they sacrificed to some idols. It's it's non-existent. There is no other God. "...for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so there's only one God, and we all exist through him. In fact, before Abraham, or or before God called Abraham, and set him and his descendants apart as his chosen people, God treated all men equally. In fact, there was no such thing as Jews and Gentiles. It was just all Gentiles. There was no Jews to to speak of. We were were all the same, if you will. And and furthermore, God told Abraham that he and his people would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 3, the Abrahamic... um, covenant or the Abrahamic blessing. And what he was ultimately referring to, of course, was Jesus who would come as the promised Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for all mankind. And so, again, a basic truth here, but it it needs to be said that Jesus didn't just die for Jews. He died for everyone who believes in him, regardless of their race, their color, their gender, their nationality. Back in Chapter one of Romans, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. How about John 3, 16? John for God so loved the Jews. No, it didn't say it. For God so loved what? The world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but to have everlasting life. In other words, God is an equal opportunity savior. His faith alone and Christ alone plan of salvation is, is fully and freely offered to everyone. Look over at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 Paul says, what does it say? What does the word say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Here it is, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice how Paul goes on to, to back up his statement here, or his question, is God the God of Jews only? Uh, No, he's also the God of Gentiles since, verse 30, indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And here Paul was appealing to that fundamental belief in Judaism that there is only one God. Israel was monotheistic and all the other Nations of the world were polytheistic, right? So that's what set them apart. And so God said in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God himself said in Isaiah 45, verse 21, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And so I think the logic that Paul is is applying here. In verse 30 is if there if there if there were multiple gods it would stand to reason that there could be multiple ways to be saved but since there is just one god there's only one way to be saved. In other words there, there's not two ways of salvation one for the Jews those who have been circumcised and those for the gentiles one for the gentiles those who have been uncircumcised no both are saved the same way by faith alone in Christ alone. I'm sure you're familiar with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Paul said this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One God, one Jesus one way to heaven. Whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, whether you're black, white, whether you're a a guy or a girl, old person, young person, right? It's all the same. And because the gospel abolished all racial distinctions when it comes to salvation... I think we should not make distinctions when it comes to how we view or interact with other people. And I'll just say that if you struggle with prejudice of any kind or you are tempted to look down on people of other races, you need to remember that Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you better start liking them now. Because you're going to have a whole lot of time to spend with them in the future. Like, all eternity, right? If God makes no distinction, then neither should we. Look um, just back at verse 22. In chapter 3, Romans 3, Paul says, For there is no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, when God looks down on earth, he doesn't see Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't see blacks and whites. He doesn't see, you know, Asians or Americans or or you you fill in the blank, right? All he sees is lost sinners or saved sinners. That's all he sees. You're either saved or lost. Bottom line, you're sinners. The question is, are you a saved sinner? Are you a lost sinner? Guess what? When we look out at the world, what should we see? I think all we should see is fellow sinners. And and, and whether they're lost or saved, that's all that we care about. What should unify all true believers here on earth is the very same thing that will unify all of us in heaven, and that is this, that we are all sinners saved by grace. Amen? We're all sinners saved by grace. All of us have the same exact Testimony, if you will. And so justification by faith alone equalizes all men. Um, thirdly, justification by faith alone establishes God's law. It establishes God's law. Verse 30, 31, he asks another question: Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now again, from the perspective of the Jews, Paul uh, Paul knew that the truth of justification by faith alone begged one more major question. If we say that a person is saved by faith alone and not by keeping the law, that seems to imply that the law is useless and should be discarded since it never mattered to begin with. And we already learned that last week or several passages ago that, that God never intended us, or never gave us a law to save us. It was never intended to save us, but to show us we needed to be saved. Well, Paul wanted to make sure that, that his readers knew he was not exalting faith at the expense of the law. And so he asked this question do we then nullify the law through faith in other words does does god's faith alone in christ alone plan of salvation render the law null and void is the law now invalidated canceled out done away with abolished does it, ha, it, ha, it has absolutely nothing to do with do with us any longer that's the question he's asking and of course his answer was may it never be the may genoite. this was the emphatic no way jose I can't even believe you asked that question, right? I mean, Paul just recoiled with disgust at the very thought of the law being annulled or disregarded or blown off by anyone, including God himself. And so Paul insisted that justification by faith alone actually does the exact opposite. It doesn't it doesn't nullify the law, it establishes a law, or confirms the law, or validates the law, or vindicates the law, or upholds the law. You say, how is that? Well, I think first of all, we need to be clear about what law Paul was talking about here, what did he have in mind here? And again, notice it's the capital L law, and I think based on the immediate context, or How Paul has used the same word in previous verses, in the same uh, passage, the law refers to the Mosaic law, or all the the rules and the regulations that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, including the Ten Commandments. Um, Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Uh, Again, verses 19 through 21. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that everyone may be closed, every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, um, well, and and, then look at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even even there, Paul includes the prophets. So some would say that the law... uh, Could also include the entire Old Testament. Well, how does God's faith alone in Christ alone, plan of salvation, confirm or uphold the law? Well, at the broadest level, every type, every foreshadow, every promise, every prophecy in the Old Testament was fulfilled by who? By Christ. Matthew 5 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said in Luke 16, Verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. In other words, just because now the new gospel of the kingdom is now being proclaimed, it doesn't do away with the law. Now specifically, how did the gospel or God's plan of salvation, establish or or uphold the law? Well, Christ perfectly kept all the rules and regulations of the law and then paid the penalty for breaking the law. In other words, God didn't just set aside the law to save us or say it no longer applied, nor did he act like it didn't exist. That would be like a judge simply ripping up the law so that the criminal could go free. Like, the guy broke the law, and, well, I really want you to go free, so I'm just gonna rip up the law and act like it never existed. That's not what God did. The fact that the law does exist and is still binding is why it was necessary for God to send his son to earth to live and die as a sinless substitute for guilty sinners. God abided by his own law by requiring his son to obey it and then punished him in the place of those who failed to obey it. So what Paul is saying is that the righteous demands of the law still had to be met by someone in order for God to let us go free. One commentator noted this, he said, as far as salvation is concerned, the gospel does not replace the law because the law was never a means of salvation. The law was given to show men the perfect standards of God's righteousness and to show that those standards are impossible to meet in in man's own power. The purpose of the law was to drive men to faith in God. In other words, if there was no law, there would be no need for the gospel. If you, if you never felt condemned by the law, you would never feel the need to be saved. And so the law and the gospel, uh, the gospel doesn't replace the law, they complement one another in the sense that, that, that the gospel justifies those whom the law condemns. And because the law deemed us unrighteous, it left us in a position where we had to flee to Christ in faith to be declared righteous by God. And so the law plays a critical role in God's faith alone, in Christ alone, plan of salvation, in in that it shows us our utter inability to make ourselves right with God. And it leads us to put our faith alone in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done to make us right with God. And so when we bow the knee to Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, we are doing exactly what the law always intended us to do. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, may it never be. For if a law has been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, a law was never given to impart life. But the scripture has set up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Well, based on what Paul was going to say or is going to say later in this letter, particularly in chapters 6, 7, and 8, I think um, another way that God's faith alone and Christ alone plan of salvation upholds the law is by enabling believers to obey it out of love for Christ. In other words, making it now possible for us to obey the law. To do the things that we couldn't do before in our own strength. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my, what? That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And again, this may or may not have been on Paul's mind right here when he wrote wrote verse 31. But again, later in chapters 6 through 8, he is going to be defending the gospel against the accusation that he was anti-law or what is called antinomianism. Is, ism. And, and you may have heard of that expression. Antinomious uh, argue that since salvation is by faith, it, it's a free gift of God, it's not based on obedience to the law, that we are, uh, that, then we are uh, therefore no longer under obligation to obey even the moral aspects of the law. And so because Paul preached salvation by faith alone, some assume that he was encouraging disobedience, The people might think they could just keep on sinning. He already hinted at that in verse 8 of chapter 3. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Why don't we just keep on sinning? If if, if the more we sin, the more grace we receive, and it makes God look good, and he can show off his grace more, then I'm just going to keep on sinning. And again, we know in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he said, may it never be, right? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he makes it clear that those who are saved by faith alone and, and who live by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will strive to obey the law. Not necessarily the, the, the dietary laws or the civil laws of Israel, but the moral laws, the Ten Commandment type laws that are, that are timeless, that are the, the, the laws that are repeated in the New Testament that are obviously not just for the nation of Israel in the specific historical context that they were given. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus did what we could never do, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit every true believer who has been saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone won't want to keep on sinning you think about the the uh, woman caught in adultery and Jesus said where are your accusers And she looked around and said, I don't know. He said, Well, I don't accuse you either. Your sins are forgiven. And what what did he say? Go and what? Sin no more. That's the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And John, in in, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, said it this way, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In other words, the greatest evidence of our love for Christ is that we want to obey Christ, we want to honor Christ. I heard it put this way one time, that the law points us to Christ for our salvation, but then Christ points us back to the law for our sanctification. In other words, the only thing the law has to do in regard to our salvation is to point us to Christ. You couldn't do it. Jesus did it for you. Put your faith in him. So we come to faith in Christ and then Christ says, oh, by the way, remember that law? I want you to go back now and live that in the power of the Holy Spirit and fulfill the law and honor and obey the Lord. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone eliminates pride, equalizes all men and establishes God's law. Let's pray. Father, we know that Satan rages against salvation by faith alone. Whenever it's declared in this world, we know that all hell is stirred up And tries to destroy those who preach this foundational doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because he knows that it could overturn the foundations of his very kingdom. And so I pray, Lord, that as we go out this week and as we proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you would protect us from the evil one because... Satan doesn't want people to hear that message. But Lord, I pray you would embolden us and excite us. Lord, as we've had the privilege of sitting under the teaching of your word and learning more about this grand doctrine, Lord, that we we couldn't help but want to share it with someone else. And so, Lord, we thank you for the fact that we cannot boast in anything today but the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.